finding God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another edition of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm Jason Elam. I'm so grateful to have you with us again this week. Hey, before we get into the episode today, I want to ask you to do me three quick favors, if you please. Number one, would you please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast? By hitting the subscribe button, you help us book great guests for the future. You see, often when a guest is considering coming on the podcast, they'll check out our subscriber numbers to see if it's a good use of their time. So by hitting that subscribe button, you're helping us book great guests for future episodes. Number two, if you will rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it, that helps spread the word about the Messy Spirituality Podcast and get it in front of new eyes and to new ears. Finally, I want to invite you to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes. When you support us there, you help us produce the best sounding podcast that we can, but also it unlocks some rewards for you, like you'll get the episodes one week early before they're released to the general public. So you'll get exclusive early access to each and every episode just by becoming a Patreon supporter for $1 or more per month. You'll also get a free copy of my book when it releases later this year. And I'm really excited about that. And I hope you will be too. Once again, it's patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes, and I'd appreciate it so much. And now here's this week's episode. Hannah Johnson is a writer, worship leader, and social work student. She has an explorer's heart and the voice of a prophet. You can follow her blog at hannahjohnson.home.blog. Hannah Johnson, welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love that introduction. Um, I'm going to have to use it for all my social media bios now. <laughs> Sounds good to me. I'm really excited that you're here today. And I want to talk to you about your spiritual journey. Tell us about your upbringing. Where, what were you raised believing? Were you raised with a particular spiritual vibe? So... From the beginning, the Christian faith was familiar to me. When I was born, actually, worship music was playing in the room. When I was three years old, I accepted Jesus into my heart. When I was five, I was enrolled in a Christian homeschool group, and my parents started their own church. So the Christian faith has been a foundation in my life. The vibe of it, and I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but I would definitely consider it to be more of an evangelical Christian vibe. Like I said, I didn't really understand it at the time. I just knew we were Christians and, and that was it. So you mentioned that your parents started their own church when you were young. Was church just a permanent fixture in your life from that point forward? Yes, definitely. I was arguably the most active member of the church growing up. I was exposed to and involved in every area of ministry, really. I was, you know, childcare, worship leader, small group leader administrative assistant at one point in time. So there really wasn't a space in the church that I didn't touch. Did you ever come to resent that? I know a lot of pastors and pastors' families end up cracking under the weight of expectation. Was that a factor in your life? Oh, yeah. People all the time would suggest, you know, well, you know, you're next. You're going to carry on this mantle of ministry. And I would always respond with the resounding, heck no. I always swore, like, if I'm not going to be anything, it's someone in ministry. And <laughs> it's kind of ironic the way my life has played out. But yeah, I I definitely came to resent certain aspects of ministry and just certain aspects of the church in general. 
for many of us, it seems like uh, we come to a point where, in our journey of faith where we start to take ownership of our faith and re-examine things we were raised with and then kind of embrace a faith that's our own. Did you go through that experience? And if so, what was it like? I've honestly been going through that experience for the past 10 years or so. When I was around 11 or 12, I really thought about faith for the first time. You know, faith was so natural and so normal to me growing up that I didn't have to think about it. But then all of a sudden here I am and I'm like, oh my gosh, do I even believe what I believe? I mean, I was really like, do I even believe that God exists? I was I was kind of at the brass tacks of it. And I've just gone through different kind of deconstruction periods throughout my life. But the biggest one was when I was 19 years old, I was doing theological studies. And it was the first time that other Christian theologies had been presented to me um, in kind of a neutral light. And I found that there were a lot of things within these different theologies that resonated with me more than what I had been raised with. Can you give us some examples of, I don't know, issues of faith that changed from your the faith of your upbringing? Yes. Okay. So when I was in my theological studies, we did an entire week about atonement theories. And that really blew my mind because there were, you know, six or seven different ones. And I'd only known about, you know, the substitutionary atonement theory. And I don't know if I've even settled on one that I feel like is the most true, but it was definitely interesting hearing different theories on the atonement, on the cross, on salvation, even, you know, outside of that evangelical perspective. After graduating from high school, you attended a ministry college started by one of the fastest growing mega churches in America. What did you hope to gain from that program? And what was your actual experience there like? So when I was about 16 years old, I started sensing that I was called to ministry. And I wasn't even really sure what that meant or what that would look like. I just knew that I was called. And so, yeah, I explored different options. I looked into doing international missions different ministry schools, even some quote-unquote secular schools. But I settled on going to ministry school, and really what I had expected to gain was just to be encouraged in who I was and the calling that I had on my life, and to be surrounded by like-minded people and, and build relationships. And of course, you know, the whole Christian college ring by spring thing, I was like, oh, I'm also going to find my husband in two years, <laughs> you know? Um, so that was definitely a, a little bit of a influencing factor, but the experience was a lot different than what I expected when I got there. There were a lot of expectations for us to meet their specific standard. And in a lot of ways, that just wasn't authentic to who I was and I didn't feel comfortable trying to conform to these standards, especially in worship leadership, because that's kind of what my focus was. And there was a very big focus on our stage presence. And, you know, you need to be a soprano instead of an alto. And you need to wear this on stage. And you need to say this and not say that. Um, and that was really, really inauthentic for me. So at what point did you decide that that program was not a good fit for you? Honestly, I decided probably by the end of my first semester, and at first I thought it was just maybe the worship leadership focus, and so I transferred to pastoral leadership the second semester, but that was a mistake because I realized that, you know, the institution as a whole was pretty much the same way, um, but, I, but I knew by the end of the first semester. 
But this was a, a church that you were pretty familiar with, right? You you really liked and enjoyed the church and the worship services. How was the experience of being trained by them different than attending their services? I think attending their services was very easy because there's nothing expected of you. You can just show up, enjoy the service, and then leave. But when you're being trained by them, they give you all these systems, all these structures. Since it is such a big and influential organization, they want you to represent them how they want to be represented. And so that that was a pretty heavy weight on our shoulders versus just, you know, the expectations of the average attendee. Did you feel like you were an anomaly in the college program or were there a lot of other folks who felt the same way about not fitting the brand? I... I think there were a lot of people who felt that way. And I think that there were some who were willing to stay in spite of that. And there were some who were not. Um, and I actually know several people who left around the same time that I left for some similar, similar reasons that I left, but it just, it really just depended on the person. There are a lot of people who disagreed with the way things worked, but they still, they still wanted to go through the program for their own reasons. So it was really just a case by case. How did that ministry college experience change you and your direction for the future? I'd like to think of it as less of a change and more of a catalyst. When I went into this experience, I did have my expectations, but at the same time, I was also very open and I, I strove to be very open to whatever God had me to do. And so I feel like even though it's hard that certain expectations weren't fulfilled, it was a catalyst into what my calling is. And so I don't really think that that's changed necessarily. I definitely think that what I believe about ministry itself and maybe my own approach to ministry has changed. Um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't think my idea of my calling has changed that much. Well, let's unpack that for a minute. You said that your ideas of ministry have changed. Uh, what, what were your ideas of ministry like before going to that school? And what are they like today? Well, it's funny because I was raised with a very holistic ministry approach. And somehow along the way, when I was a teenager, that kind of got convoluted. I think with social media being a really big influencing factor in our lives, it kind of impacted me. So you would see, you know, all these people leading worship on huge stages and blogs with huge followings and stuff like that. And all of that is very appealing because you get to serve God and you get to have all these huge opportunities. And for me, those kind of things seemed more important than maybe just the everyday stuff. And what I've learned now is that I think that ministry is less about a specific action and more about how we approach our actions. I think it's it's more of an attitude that we have that every single thing we do can be ministry. We don't need a platform, we don't need a position. We just need to live our lives in an intentional manner just like Jesus did and you know that's that's what ministry is. Growing up in the south, did you feel that women were respected and valued in the culture you were raised in? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So for me, growing up in the church, I was always allowed to uh, operate in my giftings, and I was always encouraged to operate in my giftings. And I know that that is not 
the same for all churches, especially churches in the South. I think that's maybe even rare. So that was awesome. But I definitely think that there were a lot of patriarchal kind of systems and structures and expectations that impacted Even if women were respected and valued, it wasn't in the same way that a man would be respected and valued. So it does kind of feel like you're not fully respected and valued if you're not an equal. So while it may have been unstated, there was some second-class citizen type vibe? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Gotcha. Over the last couple of years, I've witnessed you both online and in real life finding your voice and speaking out for the oppressed. What was that process of finding your voice like for you? You seem to, over time, become more comfortable in your own skin. I'm not sure anybody's ever truly, completely comfortable. Right. But it seemed like a real shift for you over the last couple of years. Is that accurate or am I reading it wrong? Yeah, no, that's definitely accurate. I really think that I think that I've always had a voice and I've I've always kind of been a blunt person more naturally. But when I was younger, that wasn't always well, well received. And yeah, <laughs> imagine that. Right. Um, and so I think I kind of shrunk back. In, in fear or in condemnation because, you know, it was bad to be blunt. It was bad to have maybe an opposing opinion. But when I was in ministry school and I was confronted with all of these things that I disagreed with, it definitely kind of lit a fire under me to speak out on what I do believe and speak out on what matters. And yeah, I just, I think I just kind of got motivated from that. Online, you've called for justice for everyone from indigenous people, people of color, those who are incarcerated, to gay, lesbian, and transgendered people, people who are often overlooked in the South. Where did your heart for people like that come from? I have always had a heart for the underdog ever since I was a child. I'm not really sure that I could identify where that started, but I think that it has been strengthened along the way through exposure. It is easy to ignore those who are marginalized and oppressed. It's easy to ignore the issues that they experience. But when you are exposed, when you step into the margins, when you humanize people and the issues that they're facing, it's really hard to to not want justice for them and to not call attention to the injustices that they endure and experience. And Really, another thing that's strengthened my heart for them is education, being able to to read and understand the history that these people groups have and to understand the systems that are in place that affect their everyday lives. So um, those two things have really helped. And I understand that it's a privilege to be able to say, you know, that exposure and education is how I learned about those things instead of experiencing them firsthand. I recognize that there's a really, really big privilege in advocating rather than going through those things each and every day. How have you kept your ministry mindset that you talked about earlier in this shift from, you know, it seemed like at one point you were moving towards platform ministry or, you know, worship ministry or pulpit ministry, and now moving to social work. I know you said it was more catalyst than change, but that's a pretty big shift in focus. Uh, how are you thinking of social work as just as much ministry as active church platform work? Ultimately, I try to 
be led by the Spirit of God in everything that I do, and recognize the opportunities to show people the love and the grace of God, even if I'm not preaching a sermon to them or leading a song or doing those things that we normally associate with ministry, I can still be ministering to them in the way that I approach them, in the way that I treat them, all of that. And really, it's funny that people look at social work as kind of a secular thing because, you know, the way I understand the gospel is that it transforms people, but it also transforms the whole of creation. And if that's true, then, you know, the systems of our society are impacted by the gospel and they should be impacted by the gospel. And so I, I really do see it as, as just as much ministry as anything else. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think my time at the Dannon Project, um, the thing I took away with it the most is real ministry does happen person to person. Right. And, uh, you know, years ago, uh, a pastor that was mentoring me, named Don Brown, taught me a definition of ministry that has never let go of me. He just said, ministry is the administration of the love of God. And that happens a lot more frequently, one-on-one or in smaller groups than it does, you know, from a platform speaking to thousands of people. Oh, yeah. And if, if that's our definition of ministry, then social work fits right there. I mean, it's just a perfect fit. Yeah, absolutely. And so I love the shift and I love uh, your heart behind social work. I just think we need social workers like that who really just want to make a difference in one person's life. And also I see uh, in your online presence that, that you learn as much from people that you serve uh, on your on mission trips that you've taken in the past as you hope they learn from you. Can you talk to us about that for a minute? Oh, yeah. No, I, I have definitely learned way more than anybody that I've served has learned. And number one, I just try to, to keep an open heart and mind at all times. And when you do that, you can really learn something from anyone and from anything. But getting outside of your own world and your own preconceptions and your own norms and this and that and the other is so important. Who are some of your inspirations in ministry? Who are examples of the kind of ministry that you feel called to? Okay, so the first person that comes to my mind, obviously, is the late Rachel Held Evans. I discovered her when I was transitioning out of ministry school. And between the time that I was in ministry school and transitioned into studying social work, I had an entire year of just being lost and confused and you'd be broken and I didn't know what I believed about God or what I believed about my calling or really what I believed about anything. And I found Searching for Sunday at the library and I started reading it and I just dove deeper into who Rachel Held Evans is. And of course, you know, she's from Birmingham originally and she was raised similarly to me. She's just a little bit further along in her life. And so she, she's definitely an example for me and my life. There's a lot of amazing women. In addition to her, I love Sarah Bessie. She's amazing. She's a great author, great leader. Honestly, I've, it's funny. I've gotten more into, I guess, spiritual leaders from the past um, who, you know, like the church fathers, historical Christian leaders, stuff like that, which is kind of interesting because I feel like I'm in a more 
progressive spirituality, but you know, nothing's new under the sun. So I love Father Oscar Romero. He's an amazing guy. I love Father Richard Moore. Obviously, he's still with us. Um, he's an amazing guy. He's taught me a lot. So I feel like there's just a really good blend of the new and and kind of the old. Well, that's good. We need both, right? Yes, absolutely. When you speak up to the oppressed, whether in a conversation or online, there's often pushback. How did you get comfortable saying things that you know won't be popular and that might cause some blowback? Well, um, I'm going to amen you on the fact that I've received pushback uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot, actually. You know, I think that I have such strong convictions. And when I make a statement about something, it's because I really believe in it. I really care about it. I'm really concerned about it, whatever the case may be. And to me, that's more important than any response. I know that my calling is to be an advocate. And I feel like when we're captivated by our calling, we're less concerned about the opinions of others. So while it is difficult at times to receive that pushback and to interact with those people who are challenging me, disagreeing with me, whatever, at the end of the day, I know who I am. I know what I'm called to do. And that's what's most important for me. You're really good at engaging with people who have a different perspective from your own. Is it hard for you to not get defensive when folks seem to be dismissing or even attacking ideas that you feel passionately about? Well, thank you for saying that. Yes, it's extremely hard. (laughs) It's hard to dialogue with somebody who doesn't have an open mind and an open heart and who isn't interested in hearing another perspective. And I often wonder why you would even attempt to dialogue without those things. To me, it's just more of an argument. And I'm not really interested in an argument. We can argue and shout each other down all day long, but that's really not the most productive use of our time and where are we really getting after all of that. So, yeah, it's just hard for me when people approach it that way. And it's it's also hard when people make things personal and start to dismiss or even attack me as a person because of what I say, because of what I believe. That's happened quite a few times, actually. And it's very hard when people start coming for my character based on a disagreement. Is that just their way of trying to dismiss or categorize you so they don't have to think about what you're having to say? Yeah, I definitely think so. I've had, you know, labels thrown at me like, you know, you've been brainwashed by the liberal agenda. You know, you're just a a little heritage, blah, 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 blah. And number one, none of that's true. And if it is, that's fine with me, I guess. But um, yeah, it just dehumanizes me. And, you know, I could shoot right back and label the people who are doing that to me. And I would also be wrong because we're not going to get anywhere if we keep dehumanizing each other and if we keep closing our minds and our hearts off to one another's perspectives. What does the church that you dream of look like? The church that I dream of is inclusive, welcoming to all. It looks a lot like Jesus. I think that the church has been so concerned with systems and structures and getting numbers and and looking a certain way and achieving a certain outcome. And we've missed what it means to, to be like Jesus. And so, yeah, I I think a church that is inclusive, that's welcoming, 
that is accessible to all people, that really does the work of the ministry. You know, in the book of Acts, the way the early church is described, it, it couldn't be any better than that. They really took what Jesus said to do seriously and they did it. They shared everything that they had. They lived their lives together with one another. I guess what I'm saying is very much a community. And that's what I think church should be. It's not an institution. It's a community. It's it's a body. It's a living, breathing thing. It, it can't be confined to a building. Now, you say um, that the church you dream of it is open to everybody, very inclusive. How far do you go with that? I know that there are people here in the Bible Belt culture that we live in who say everyone's welcome, but as soon as they come in, they need to change or we're going to start putting up barriers. They can't take communion. They can't join the church. They can't be active in ministry. How far do you go with that? I mean, I say go as far as I can possibly go. I think there should be absolutely no barriers. I think all are welcome. Um, And I think that the ministry of Jesus was very much for the marginalized and oppressed. And you would think that the ministry of his church would also be for the marginalized and oppressed. But honestly, I think that the church has contributed to the marginalization and the oppression of people. And that really grieves my heart because that's not true to who Jesus is and what his church should be. So I think that, yeah, an all-inclusive, all-welcoming church is, is true to Jesus and his mission. How do we get there from here? How do we get to that from where we are now here in the Bible Belt? Oh, Lord. Um, that's, exhausting. that's exhausting to think about. <laughs> I think that there's going to be, there's going to have to be a lot of personal deconstruction and reconstruction and a lot of corporate deconstruction and reconstruction. I think that we have accepted certain things as the norm and not really questioned if that's actually true to who Jesus is and to who the church should be. I think we're pretty entrenched in tradition. And I think that we'll all need to step back and take a look at all of those things and see if that's, like I said, even true to Jesus and and to who the church should be. Yeah. It feels like Jesus is calling us out of the boat into some very uncomfortable waters. And uh, I think it just feels like some of us, myself included, really struggle with, do we want that badly enough to be uncomfortable for a very long time? Because it feels like that shift is going to take a long time. Right. Well, and most people don't because you're in the trenches when you're trying to affect change in your community, in your church, whatever. And it's exhausting. It's just, it's easier to do what everybody else is doing. It's easier to do what's comfortable for us. It's easier to do what the world would consider to be a success. But what does it matter if we gain the whole world, but we lose our souls in the process? You know, I I don't, I don't want to compromise the truth of, you know, who Jesus is and what I'm called to just to go along with what everybody else is doing. But it, yeah, it's it's definitely going to be a long and hard journey us to to undo those things that have been there for so long. Well, Hannah, I really appreciate your time today, and I'm so glad that you came on. What projects are you working on right now, and where's the best place for listeners to engage with you online? Well, my biggest projects right now are 
being the best full-time student I can be and being the best intern I can be, which is not super exciting, but it's, it's exciting for me, not so much for everybody else, but I am blogging right now. Um, my website is hannahjohnson.home.blog. It just launched, so there's not a whole bunch of content, but I'm hoping to get to work on that very soon. And then if anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, it's at the Hannah E. Johnson. I mostly just post pictures of coffee shops and things around town. So it's not it's not super inspiring, but if you're into that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that you raised the uh, the name of Rachel Held Evans, who passed away just recently uh, earlier in the conversation, because, Hannah, you remind me so much of what I know of Rachel Held Evans. You're courageous. You're willing to engage with people you know disagree with you, but you always do it respectfully like she did. And I feel like the future of the church is in very good hands with people like you leading the way. And I'm so grateful for you and the ministry God's given you. And the voice that you have and the voice that you use for the oppressed. And I just want to say thanks for your time and thanks for the work that you do. And I'm looking forward to great things from you in the future. Thank you so much. That's such an honor. And I just appreciate your willingness to give me a platform and give me opportunities, whether it's leading worship or talking with you today. It's just, I'm really grateful for it. I always enjoy it. So I just thank you so much. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.